What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Today, we have an awesome interview for you with Hope Wallensack, who is the executive director of the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, which is called the Grow Fund. And she also led a new project called In Her Hands, which is what we talk a lot about in this interview. In Her Hands is a program in Atlanta, Georgia, focused on helping Black women rise out of poverty, aiming to reduce wealth inequality and racial inequality by giving them guaranteed income for the next 24 months. We talk all about the program and what goes into it and why it's so important and the impact that she hopes that it will have for those communities. But we also spent a lot of time talking about how they developed that program, which is where you're all going to get a ton of insight into how do you work with communities to develop solutions and programs that are going to serve them. So often in our work building community, we try to come up with solutions and then we bring it to our community already fully thought out and fully planned, but they weren't involved in the development of that program. Their voice wasn't necessarily included. And Hope and her team put together all different formats of collecting feedback through interviews, through small groups, through surveys, through a task force that brought together both community members and experts. And they just spent so much time working with the community before they even knew what a solution would be. They didn't go into it planning on a guaranteed income program. They really want to understand what is the experience of these communities and work with the communities to design the solutions. Hope's just such a thoughtful community builder, community organizer, and led this program through and through. So we just learned so much from her about how to build more inclusive and equitable communities, emphasis on equitable, not just diverse. And I think you're just going to learn a lot about how you can essentially run a similar kind of program for your own communities and hopefully get a lot of inspiration from in her hands, which you can also still contribute to and support the work that Hope is doing. All right, enjoy. Let's dive in. Hope, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you here and learn everything that you've been working on with Inner Hands. And you have such a cool background in both community and policy. So why don't we just start with your background, a little bit of an intro about Inner Hands and the work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Super excited to be here and talk about sort of the community work that has led to this Inner Hands program. A little bit about me, I'm, I'm from New Haven, Connecticut a state with sort of pretty deep inequality and sort of growing up on the on the on the side of lower income in Connecticut. And so I really started my career actually as a teacher then in New Orleans, Louisiana. And for the past several years I've been in Atlanta and organizing with the old Fourth Ward community, which for those who may not be familiar with the city of Atlanta, it's really like the heart of the city. It's geographically centrally located. It also is really iconic in that is the birthplace of Dr. Martin Luther King, where he pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church and where he and Coretta are buried today. And it is also home to a lot of tourist attractions in the city, from the boulevard area to sort of new developments with lots of restaurants and shopping, and all block, all within blocks of one another. And then finally, there's, it's home to the largest concentration of Section 8 housing in the Southeast. So sort of my trajectory over the past few years and, and what's led me to in particular, be working with this community. Very cool. And so you went from education to working in, in more policy and, and supporting communities. I think you were an assistant principal as well, right? So you went from teaching to admin, and then you got out of education. What was that transition like? Yeah, really, I think teaching was and probably is the art hardest job I will ever have. I think people <laughs> sort of say that, yeah. um, but, I, but I really mean it. And I've worked in like electoral politics. I've worked in many different spaces. Teaching is, is no joke. And I, I imagine even for teachers over the past couple of years, it's been even more <sighs> intense. I mean, I feel like teachers are really like on the ground community organizers, advocates, totally. whether they've like 
whether they want to be or not, they're often playing that role. And so when I was teaching in New Orleans, I was teaching fifth and sixth grade social studies. And I think we talked a lot about every kid going to and through college. And I think that was like a great goal and a great maybe ambition. Should that be what these kids want for themselves and what what families want? Mm. I think that was a great goal and ambition. But what I realized is that there were so many systemic obstacles that were going to make it really hard for kids, Black kids from New Orleans, from the economic backgrounds that a lot of them are from. It was going to be very hard for that to be the case. And whether it was college or another milestone of success or another milestone or whatever sort of measure of like a happy, healthy, thriving life, there was going to be a lot of systemic obstacles. And when I was teaching, we placed so much of the emphasis was on having individuals, in particular children, change their behavior to cope with really broken systems rather than changing the systems themselves. And so while the status quo of the world may not change in in a short period of time, it maybe can if we have concerted community-driven efforts, it maybe can, but while maybe it won't change in a short period of time and certainly people can better maybe manage the world as it is, I think we should also be building a world where we stop asking kids and we stop asking particular communities to continue to have to overcome these obstacles. How about we just sort of change the status quo and we change the systems to begin with? Mm. And so really that's what led me into this work of let's actually be thinking about systemic reform. Let's be thinking about how we grasp at the root. How do we get to the root of some of these problems? Yeah, I'm sensing some parallels in the work that you do today. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it says something for you to say, you're like solve small problems now of racial and wealth inequality. And you still say that teaching was the hardest job you've ever had. So kudos. My wife's a sixth grade teacher too. She teaches here in the mission in San Francisco and everything you're just, my mom's a teacher, my sister's a teacher. So surrounded by teachers, it is extremely difficult work. Yeah. And I think there's a reason that a lot of people go from education into community building. We actually find in like corporate community building too, a lot of people were teachers before. It's kind of like one of the hardest versions of community building. Yeah. So much respect for teachers. So you moved into this work and and now you're working on Inner Hands. Maybe could you just talk a little bit about what you're doing today and the specific programs that you worked on? And then, yes, what I really like, what I'm really excited to talk about is how you develop that program with the community, because I think there's something that every community builder is going to be able to learn from that. But why don't we start with like what the program is and kind of what the goals are of the program? Yeah. The In Her Hands initiative is a statewide initiative across Georgia that provides a guaranteed income to Black women in three geographies across our state. And by guaranteed income, we mean putting cash in the hands of those most in need with the goal of fostering greater choice, agency, and economic security. The program will provide $850 a month on average for 24 months to 650 participants and really with the goal of not only ensuring greater economic stability and security, but also sort of what can we learn about policy change more broadly. Um, So when we say in her hands, it is an ode to a Dr. Martin Luther King quote, the dignity of the individual will flourish when matters concerning his life are in his hands. He goes on to talk about guaranteed income. Dr. King was an early advocate for guaranteed income, along with several other civil rights leaders and actually several grassroots organizations, including the National Welfare Rights Organization led by Joni Tillman. And so in her hands is about the power of putting cash in an individual's hands, especially women, what that means for their future prospects, what that means for their families, what that means for their communities. Um, Cash shortfalls are something that we often talk about in an individual way, but certainly they reverberate across generations and it reverberates across communities that experience these intense cash shortfalls over time. And then the the second meaning of in her hands is, what does it mean to ensure that communities who have been pushed to the margins, the communities that are experiencing the most acute and brutal impacts of systemic failures are actually centered in the policies and centered in the discussions that solutions that we're driving. And they actually have the power in their hands or in our hands to drive those solutions. And so we really think about this as sort of a collective effort, not just an individual thing, but there's so much that we can learn and do when we collectively are focusing on communities that have been have been most marginalized by some of these issues. Mm-hmm. So a bit about the development of this project is this started out of a community-driven task force. It was convened by an Atlanta city council member, Amir Faroki. This 28 organizations and community members came together with the simple charge. What are the root causes of economic insecurity, in particular in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood that I just described earlier? 
the large concentration of Section 8 housing amid rapid gentrification. King's legacy is in this neighborhood. What are the root causes of economic insecurity? And then what can we do about them? Local government nonprofits are some of the most, the most should be some of the most agile forms to solve forms of government and forms of institutions that are able to solve some of these issues. What can we actually do to attraction? And when we started talking and convening, what we found were two things. One, there was a in talking to community members themselves, what they described is there were plenty of services to maybe where they could find support. And there were some in-kind resources, like they could maybe get food assistance through like SNAP or food stamps, or maybe they could get housing assistance through, let's say like Section 8, but they really needed the flexibility of cash to sort of change their future prospects. And then second was that Black women on large were, both from our research and from talking to communities, Black women on large generally were experiencing some of the harshest impacts of economic insecurity. And so when we looked at that, what we said and what community members told us was that cash would be a powerful tool. What we heard was a game changer on some of these outcomes with, with so many impacts on different outcomes in folks' lives. And so really what this came down to is trusting people in community when they say something and those who are closest to the problem really have the most insight and knowledge on how to change that problem. And so that's really where the recommendation for a guaranteed income program focused on Black women came from. Got it. And so you didn't go into this with like, we're putting together a guaranteed income program. We're trying to figure out the best way to distribute it. You really went in with like, we are trying to solve for wealth inequality broadly. And, but you didn't know what the solutions would be. You didn't even know exactly who the program would focus on in particular. You didn't go out and say, we're only going to focus on Black women. It was through the research and through working with communities that you came up with a solution and the people that you would focus on. Is that right? That's exactly correct. In fact, I'm in retrospect, very grateful for this process in which we asked really open-ended questions Mm. because we got more authentic, more nuanced feedback. And frankly, we sort of knew maybe guaranteed income or similar type programs could be one of the things we could sort of advocate for. But that was among maybe like 10 to 15 different programs that were being discussed at the time. And when we sort of asked, we asked people openly, what are the things that you love about your community? And what are your hopes and your ambitions for your community? And this was a really important as we hosted listening sessions, coffee, one-on-ones, So often, the focus is on what communities lack in our deficits. This relates back to, I think, my experiences in education and the way we would talk to kids a lot. Mm -hmm. So often, communities that are experiencing the brunt impact of a systemic failure, we're often told what we lack, what we're deficit in. But how do we actually flip that? How do we talk about the fact that communities are incredibly resilient and resourceful? And if there were more resources here, if we emphasize the assets that exist here, we could actually amplify that. So in talking to people about sort of their hopes and ambitions for themselves and their community and what could help them there, we continually came back to cash. I will say that there were many other sort of proposals that people in the community wanted to see. Some of these were around transit. Some of these were around ability to buy homes in this community. Some of them were about sort of other opportunities that would sort of help to change the status quo. We did, though, generally, there was a sense that cash within itself, a guaranteed income program focused on this community as we developed out the program would be a powerful tool. But it was not obvious on the outset. And I'm very grateful that we asked these sort of open-ended questions. And as we continue our work and expand across the state, we continue to ask these really open-ended questions and not prescribe a solution, but to really listen when people tell us what solutions, what good solutions would look like for themselves and their communities. Mm. How do you make that decision? If you have a community and a diverse set of people giving you feedback, giving you ideas, having lots of ways that they could see solving this problem, how do you land on that one solution? And how do you communicate that to people who thought other solutions would be better? Yeah, I think this was a a large part of who are the really the key stakeholders. So, so many times, especially when it comes to social issues, it's viewed that maybe nonprofits, elected officials, business owners may be some of the key stakeholders. That is true. But who I view as my ultimate board, who I view that I am ultimately responsible to, is to the the impacted, the people living in the circumstance themselves. And so I think that view helped to ensure that that community perspectives actually were elevated. Actually, let's like flip the power, the power Mm -hmm. script on this. So many times decision makers are the ones furthest from the problem? What if we said the ones people closest to the problem should actually be the decision makers? And so I think there was a lot of 
so many different creative aspects. So that's the first point. But the second point is that there were so many different creative aspects that came to the fore from many different stakeholders that we were excited to embed into this program. So there was a while where we hoped that this would be paired with a savings component. That isn't feasible right now, but that is not lost in the back of my mind that maybe there could be some type of crash transfer program. And in addition to that, there could be like a really exciting savings component. Would love to see a cash transfer program alongside a home ownership program. And so we really view this as like a starting place in a place to like get ideas generating. This doesn't have to be the end, but it can be really where a lot of mm-hmm. this work begins. Just real quick for those who aren't familiar like me <laughs> with some of the terminology, <laughs> what's a cash transfer program? What's a savings program? And how is that different from what you're doing? Yeah. So cash transfer programs are basically what they sound like. They're typically unconditional cash disbursements to members of a particular group. Guaranteed income is a type of cash transfer, but it's similar to like your stimulus checks or your child tax credit payment. Uh The majority of Americans have now received. And so cash transfers generally as a concept are let's solve poverty at the root. People no longer experience poverty when they have funds. And so if you provide direct financial assistance, then people not only in the short term, but generally in the long term and across generations typically don't experience uh, economic insecurity and poverty. Thanks for encouraging the clarification. Of course. Yep. And the savings program, is that different? Yeah, a savings program could look like there are lots of different options on, on various savings programs. There are some programs that would maybe invest money for you or save money for you and maybe have a match component. Okay. Or there could be programs where you're highly incentivized to save maybe based on another a number of measures. I will say that in general, what we find is that with the research supports is that when people have additional cash, it provides breathing room to make these decisions for themselves. So right. when people have additional cash, they can actually explore sort of savings and investing tools much better. They can explore home ownership much better. They can ex- explore better job opportunities much better. Mm-hmm. And so we view cash as like the ultimate choice mechanism. Mm. It enables choice across all of these domains and that people really know for themselves what the best path for them and their families looks like. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so and on that front, then what does this program look like if it's really successful? How do these people's lives lives change on the other side of this? Because yeah. I imagine this is also, you're looking at this as a sort of model for what could work. And if it does work, then you can expand it to other communities and other groups and run a lot more programs like this. So yeah, what does success look like? Yeah, success looks like two things. One, that community members themselves were able to drive large portions of this program. So from the recommendation of a guaranteed income program to the $850 a month for 24 months, that was decided by community members to, there's going to be a subset of participants who receive a lump sum transfer up front. That was something that community members told us that they wanted. Like the, the big aspects of this program are actually driven by community members. And that when we do that, and that when programs and policies change in general, is driven that way and is responsive to what people are expressing they need, that actually we see better outcomes. Instead, oftentimes we're like, we're, we're feeling around in the dark about solutions mm-hmm. instead of just listening to the people impacted by the problem. Mm-hmm. So I think success really comes from the process is the outcome. Like it is important that in the process of this, we are actually putting power in the hands of those who are impacted. And then the second I think is to learn about sort of the impact of, of programs like these does it, to what extent does it change outcomes? I think there's a lot of really encouraging research around a guaranteed income and similar type programs, but it does improve a whole host of outcomes, not only for the program participant, but for their families and communities. But we want to know Black women are facing some of the most significant economic insecurity in our country as a group. Mm-hmm. And so we want to know really if focusing on communities who are experiencing the most acute impacts of something actually how that can drive policy change and really drive it from the ground up. So we're also interested in sort of how this model and how how focusing on, again, those who've been on the margins can really drive broader policy change mm-hmm. and more equitable change that works for everyone. Totally. Yeah. Are there specific outcomes that you're looking for on the other side of this to say like, yes, providing this guaranteed income works like more homeowners or less unemployment or like what are the things that you look for to be able to say like, yes, this worked compared to 
other similar programs? Yeah, we are looking at, we have a community-based participatory research design. Mm -hmm. And so what that means (laughs) is that we will ask community members, what do you want to know about this program? (laughs) We've Cash can improve a whole host of outcomes Mm -hmm. for a long time, for decades. We've been looking at the connection between cash programs and labor market outcomes, but there's certainly so much more that we can learn. We can learn how people like to spend their time and live their life and sort of what ambitions people pursue and sort of like how it just creates better neighborhoods and how people become more civically engaged. There's so many other outcomes that, that cash most certainly impacts and so many more choices that it enables. So we have a list of, of things that we anticipate that we'll ask, including related to health and wellness outcomes, family mm. relationships, some employment outcomes, some ability to overcome known wealth decelerators. So we sort of know some of the things that perpetuate the black-white wealth gap. We anticipate that, that this cat, this guaranteed income program will provide a little bit of a buffer. But most importantly, our research evaluation model is really going to ask community members in meetings where we'll all come together, what do you want to learn? And then it is our responsibility to embed that in the research design. Very cool. And I guess you collect those insights through surveys and interviews? Exactly. And we'll host sort of community town halls, which is one of the reasons that our mm. our program is so locally based. So although it's a statewide program, it'll really be concentrated in three geographies across the state. And because there are aspects to it, we learn so much when we come together. Like we learn so much when we just simply talk to people and ask questions and don't assume or prescribe a solution. And so Mm -hmm. that aspect of it, of being able to, well, there are many good things about being able to do things digitally and being able to talk to people across the country. And we learn a lot from that too. There is something really significant about being able to come together and to talk about these things in a community space, Mm -hmm. like a school or community town hall. And so really that's one of the, one of the objectives of the program. Mm. And I hope that has effects for like, not just the design of this program and the evaluation of this program, but it really brings people together to talk about their community. Again, like things they want to see and improvements they want to see in their community and ways that we can help support in maybe some of those solutions, but also other resources that maybe we can help direct to some of these communities that have been overlooked for far too long. Mm. And the format of those town halls are essentially like everyone gets together at a community center and like each person has an opportunity to kind of speak to the whole group. But in that way, you're also like hearing stories, you're hearing feedback, you're learning directly from people. Yes, exactly. And that way people can hear each other. So Mm -hmm. sort of a survey format, I like lots of different forms of sort of feedback and to think about how to collect this and sort of the pros and cons of each one. There is sort of this thing that can happen with, let's say, like a survey or let's say like a listening session that's just one-on-one where there becomes one person who is the holder of all knowledge, mm-hmm. one person who read all the, or a small team who's read all the survey feedback. And sure, you can disseminate it back out. Sure, you can sort of do readouts. But it sort of becomes that there are some people who know much more about this topic and are sort of coalescing, maybe trying attempting to coalesce the ideas versus maybe more open formats that allow communities for ourselves to like coalesce our ideas together. And I think there's much more nuance that happens there. It is much more community driven when it occurs in that way. So I think all of these forms of feedback, particularly on the evaluation design, will be things that will probably elicit, but that there is this sort of power of bringing people together and everyone is hearing from one another. Mm, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And you applied that same mentality to the research going into developing this program and creating it. You had all different kind of focus groups, like expert interviews, surveys, working with existing organizations. So I think there's something to learn there for anyone who's building community, right? Like we do all sometimes rely too heavily on one form of feedback from our community, whether it's interviews or just researching ourselves without even talking to people or just focus groups, but we don't do the surveys, right? Like, so I guess, could you speak a little bit to how you went about conducting that research? Like what were the different forms of gathering information that you had that helped define this program? Yeah. The first was there several different forms. The first was convenings and the assembling of key stakeholders. So that was a 28-member task force who sort of launched this work. And that was led by Councilmember Faroki here in Atlanta. And then the second form was talking to community members themselves. While there were many community members on the task force itself, I think Mm -hmm. there was an intentional effort to actually let's talk to folks in the community who are impacted by some of these issues 
who aren't serving on this task force for one reason or another. Time commitments, they're not as plugged in. They've got other stuff going on in their life. We did that through some interviews, some one-on-ones and coffees, a survey, which we were really proud of and got a ton of feedback. And we were sure there was lots of places for open-ended feedback in the survey, Mm -hmm. which I think was key. And then through a series of, of listening sessions, some of which were followed a very formal protocol, some of which as it began, we ditched the protocol because it didn't fit. And people were, this was in the middle of towards August to October of 2020, sort of the heat of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We actually just need to sit and listen. This doesn't have to be a highly structured agenda. This doesn't have to be a highly structured agenda. Maybe our role here is just to listen and, and not to prescribe solutions. And so I think some of those were the key tools that we used. In addition to sort of like, there was a bit of canvassing, there was a bit of other work that occurred. Mm, cool. Okay, I have a bunch of questions. I guess on that, on those listening sessions, when you keep it open-ended, so like, I think that's something we often do is we kind of lead with the solution. We're trying to identify the solution rather than just listening. I guess like, what kind of questions do you ask to really prompt them to share their stories or their insights that are going to be useful for you as you're trying to work toward a solution? Yeah, I think a few key principles here, a few key principles are sort of, I think in general, so many times, especially in Black communities, we're asked to talk about our challenges and what we don't have. And so, but if you can reframe it into like the optimism that we do have, the resilience that we do have, we're having a next level conversation that's much more solutions oriented. So a large extent has often felt really exploitive, whether it's sort of the news or whatever organization Mm. can often feel like really exploitive, even when people have the best intention that continues to just highlight and emphasize the problem without offering real solutions. And so one of our goals was to, yes, acknowledge what folks were going through, especially the time period that this was occurring. And then also like have a conversation that's exciting, that's aspirational a conversation where it feels like this is actually driving towards something. And I think that that was really helpful. So two of the questions that stand out, that stand out was we didn't ask people necessarily to convey something deeply about their experience. We just asked people like, what are generally challenges in this neighborhood? And people were allowed to just talk generally about the challenges in the neighborhood. Mm. And then what are ambitions for you, but also for your community? so that people can speak more broadly and they don't feel the need to have to divulge really personal details about their experience. Although there were times when people did want to share their personal stories and that was certainly welcome, but really allowing people to sort of have an analysis on the community and actually encouraging that analysis on the community and even sort of like more broader level was encouraged. And I think some of those tools were more conducive to an open and honest conversation. And then we were able to maybe get to some of the personal things, but not trying to start there because it's not how you authentically build a relationship with someone. Mm. In fact, I'm skeptical of people who come up to me and ask, try to ask me questions like that. Like, let's have a real conversation as just like two people, two humans in this space. And like, we'll see where this goes. Mm. There's such a powerful insight in there. And I've definitely been guilty of this, like in trying to build community or build solutions for members of the community to go and be like, tell me about you. Like, what are your problems? What's your day to day? When like, it kind of ignores the fact that they're existing in community as well. And like a lot of their concerns aren't just about them. They want to like figure out how to improve the community as a whole. And that's a much more comfortable entry point for a lot of people to talk about solutions Mm -hmm. for the group before like making it about them, especially when it's people from groups that have felt exploited by questions like that in the past. Yep. And I think that so many of our systems are set up in a way to try to, that poverty, economic insecurity is often seen as a result of bad personal choices Mm -hmm. rather than a systemic issue. So when we start with talking about sort of community level issues, we've already removed the trope. We've already removed the trope that that there's been individual bad choices drive this problem. We know this is a systemic problem. We sort of know that this is something that actually generally people are coping with and managing all things considered pretty well. But maybe we just want to change the status quo of what people are asked to manage. And we want to change the status quo of the level of resilience that we constantly mandate from people to simply survive. And so I think that entry point sort of flipped the script on sort of existing tropes and existing sort of myths that are often perpetuated sort of in in the way that we facilitate or enter conversations. Yeah, I'm I'm like seeing a lot of parallels in a lot of people listening to this podcast are 
building online communities or building communities for an organization. And so like wealth inequality and like cash and like guaranteed income is probably what the most crystal clear version of inequality and a situation where blame is often put on the individual. But you can apply that broadly to any community that lacks diversity or isn't inclusive and equitable. And you, whether or not it's explicit or not, a lot of the time, the same kind of tropes are brought into that conversation of like, well, why don't more Black people work in tech? And then it's like, is it the individual or is it a systemic issue? Or like in our own community that we run of community managers, like how do we make it more equitable and inclusive? Having that conversation on a systemic level and asking members of those groups for like their thoughts on where the challenges are for the community as a whole and their aspirations for it seem a lot better than like, tell me about you (laughs) Mm -hmm. as a way of opening up that conversation. Yeah, definitely. I think this applies across different sectors, different policy areas, different like problems that we're trying to solve. And we're hoping to get a number of stakeholders at the table and like community at the table. Sort of how do we, maybe there's a reason community members and people from sort of underrepresented communities have chosen not to be at the table or why they shy away from them or why those tables can be incredibly frustrating and actually dehumanizing spaces. And so maybe we can either, yeah, maybe we can flip the script on like whose table is it to begin with, who sort of owns the driving of this conversation. And then how can even our questioning preempt, how can our questioning actively debunk the myths that exists already? So that that's a good question. So for someone like me, a white male, who wants to make my community and the communities that I lead and run more inclusive and more equitable. Am I in a position to be able to navigate these discussions and make members of those communities feel safe and like not exploited? Or what are things that I can do to be able to, if I wanted to lead a program like this, or I wanted to put in work like you're doing to make a community more inclusive? Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) I think there are different roles that everyone will play. And I think it's probably important to have people in leadership at organizations who sort of are generally representative of the communities that a program, a policy seeks to serve. Mm -hmm. And not just in the sense that descriptive representation matters. It's not just like this person looks like me, Mm. but like substantively, this person values and is values the perspectives of people in impacted communities and that substantively this person has both like the power and authority to like do something about that Mm. not to mention i think in and of itself just enabling people from the impacted communities or the communities we seek to serve to sort of be like compensated for their advice and for their feedback to Mm -hmm. ensure that they're in leadership positions to ensure that there's sort of accessible structures and formats for them to be driving a conversation and so I think it depends on sort of what exactly it looks like sort of by sector by area but I think that some of it is like descriptive representation is great but also moving into some of this substantive representation that can frankly typically be held by anyone of any identity, but it may open up the doors a little bit more if it's someone who also shares aspects of of identity to the impacted community. Mm. I'm reminded that King in his in his later years said that he feared that desegregating the lunch counter would be easier than achieving like material equality. And so there's this idea sort of oftentimes that diverse representation is sufficient for equity and change. And so how do we actually go about like substantive change? And it would be great. I think I think a path forward would be if everyone sort of was like embodying sort of the substantive qualities, the substantive qualities that will help change sort of some of those conditions and reversing the power dynamic of who's typically driving the conversations, who's typically compensated for this type of work, who even has like the access to be engaged in this work in the first place. So yeah, those are some of my thoughts. Those are good thoughts. Yeah. Does that get towards it? What Does that get towards it? What are you thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm learning a lot from this already. And I think it probably, I would love to dive into how you kind of curated the task force and what that structure was, because I imagine that's a really powerful vehicle for substantive bringing in people who are not just representative of that group, but actually want to influence those programs and like compensate them and put them in positions of leadership like that that group is in a position of leadership, I'm assuming. I'll ask you more about that. But yeah, I think it's something that those of us who are building community and trying to make them more inclusive and more equitable, but like we are not members of the group that we're trying to bring that impact to. 
it can feel, yeah, it feels hard sometimes to know what to do and not be exploitative of asking them for solutions. I think, honestly, like compensation is like one very straightforward thing. It's like, it's okay <laughs> to ask for help, but just like, don't do it for free and, yeah. and also ask experts. We actually did recently do a sort of like DEI audit of our community. And we do a community health survey and we track level of inclusion and belonging and equity in our community and how different groups rate their level of belonging and inclusion and the Mm -hmm. value they get and if they feel their voice is heard and accepted. And so, okay, we got some benchmarks and like numbers weren't that good, right? So like, okay, we want to make improvements here. Mm -hmm. One thing we did is we hired a DEI expert that would help us go through like audit the community and our language and like conduct surveys and interviews to be able to like get insights that we can bring into the community and improve it. Mm -hmm. And so like that, I think was effective and useful, but like what I'm learning from you, both in terms of just various formats of collecting feedback, but also in just like bringing on lots of different leadership and different voices to be a part of coming up with those solutions. It's like hiring a DAI expert almost feels like the table stakes. And there's a lot, there's many more layers and levels that we can go to, to really make the whole process of coming up with the solutions really equitable. Yeah, completely, completely agree. I worked in DEI and education for a while or anti-racism education for a while. And when I was working with school districts, I think sort of that was one of the first things that I would talk about was sort of the, it's great to have maybe one person who's sort of this who owns this portfolio, but that like hiring a single individual is only going to have but so much change. What are the structural changes that need to occur, occur within the organization? What are the power shifts that need to occur within the organization? How is sort of the sort of some of the very foundations of this work going to change if we're going to have not just a more diverse environment, but a more equitable and just environment? I think sometimes in DEI work, sort of like we get caught in this diversity trap where we have enough representation of like different faces where we're like, oh, like problem solved. Whereas like it's the conversations about equity and justice are actually conversations about power and who has the power to drive certain decisions, whose voices are listened to, who is compensated, who has material resources and time to devote to some of these things and like who structurally within either an institute, within organization or an institution sort of able to drive drive those conversations. And so what I'm maybe hearing too is like the conversation moving from just to being about diversity to like equity, justice and, and power relationships, which guaranteed income is sort of all about. It's helping to give back. It's helping to ensure that communities who've been for whom this has been taken away for a long time <laughs> have a little bit of power restored, a little bit more choice, a little bit more agency. We know mm. it is not a panacea and you know it won't solve everything, but that it is like just providing a little bit more on some of those fronts in a way where we're sort of changing the power relationship and communities have greater ability to advocate for these solutions for themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one thing I've learned over the course of doing this kind of work is that diversity is an outcome of equity, not a cause of equity. Yeah, that's powerful. Yep. And so the task force. So I like that seems like a really powerful way to go about kind of making change for DEI or really for any sort of solutions or change you want to build into a community. So how did you put together that task force? Like who were the members? How were they selected? Were they compensated? Tell me more about how that was structured. Yeah, I think that the task force process might be an area where there were both things that went well and things that I think we learned during the process. Hmm. And so happy to just be really, really honest yeah. about those things. I think that the task force was a diverse group of stakeholders, mostly in the metro Atlanta area, some national stakeholders. It included several community members who maybe were experiencing some of these issues or had close proximity to folks in their communities experiencing some of these economic strains. And then it included people from the labor community, people from the philanthropic community, folks from the faith community. We were very excited to have a pastor from Ebenezer Baptist Church join and formerly elected officials, currently elected officials, sort of policy wonks. So the task force was included a diverse range of, of stakeholders. And I think that as we got into the task force process, there were many times at which, especially as we were having more conversations with impacted community members, it was sort of became clear that like some of the task force opinions probably needed to be set aside. Mm. And that sort of our role, I was 
organizing the task force, I was directing the task force, that our role was to sort of, in our positions of power, was to like elevate what other people were saying. Like maybe the idea generation, and, and we got to hear from incredible speakers from across the country. I mean, I think like top experts in sort of the racial wealth gap and economic inequality. And we reached a certain point where it was like, we are great people to be having this conversation because the positions of power that we hold or mm. organizations that we manage, but actually maybe our role is best served in elevating, like seeding that power and like in ensuring that it's elevating other voices. And I think that was something we realized throughout the task force process. I think slowly, as there were generally like really strongly held opin- opinions initially, those opinions sort of became like less strongly held because it became clear that we have hundreds of community members who've just told us in a survey, sort of like the issues that we're experiencing. We've had several listening sessions. We've had several community members come and speak with the task force. The community members on the task force itself are telling us sort of the same thing. And so I think that was actually a big realization process Mm. that what is the best way that this task force can serve? And it seemed like by the end, that was one, like we should just be throwing our weight behind the recommendations that, that community members are coming up with and figuring out ways that we can take those from recommendations to reality. That's sort of our job here. Okay, interesting. So, right. So the task force's job became less about coming up with solutions and more about like listening. And then like essentially the community members are putting trust in you and the task force to turn that into solutions. And so it's essentially designing the solution in a way that is going that will hopefully work, but that really takes into account the member feedback. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's the primary role. And if we're servant leaders that like that should be the goal, not necessarily like prescribing a program that we that we think works or that fits within sort of our paradigm of change, being open to a new paradigm, being open to a Mm. new way of thinking about these problems. Mm. And was that that was within the the committee's power to make that decision on like what the solution is on the task force, not committee? Yeah, I think that this was run by it was co-chaired by four folks who are pretty influential in Atlanta. And I think they were all about uh, sort of embracing this framework. And so from former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin, co-chaired the task force to Dina Kimball, who is now the president and CEO of Demos, which is a pretty big policy organization, to Dina Kimball of the Candida Fund. It's a large foundation here in Atlanta. And then council member Amir Faroqui. I think all of them were generally pretty open to we're starting this process because we want to learn, not because we know. Mm-hmm. So there was, I think in particular, former Mayor Shirley Franklin, very beloved mayor of Atlanta, was mayor in the 2000s. She said, you know, over the past couple of decades, a lot of money has been spent from many different sectors and sort of anti-poverty work in Atlanta. And we haven't seen the poverty rate change significantly. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we missing? And so I mm-hmm. think to hear a former mayor who is so loved and respected in the city, like open up conversations with that sort of premise, really opened up a space where we don't need to have all of the answers. What we need to have is like a pathway to find solutions and to like listen to people who are proposing solutions. And so some of that will come from our history and from Dr. King, but maybe this site is not only a place, maybe this old fourth ward neighborhood is not only a place that like to remember our past, but to also build our future. Mm. So I think a lot of that was was embedded in the task force framework. And that was really credit to the four task force co-chairs who created that space. That's amazing. And who had like final decision-making power (laughs) on what the program would be? Who's like jobs to actually say, okay, we've gotten all the feedback, all the insights. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah, I did my best to like listen to everyone and host a ton of one-on-one meetings and really sort of combine a lot of this feedback and was sure to be really transparent and have sort of like write-ups and documents that would share sort of, this is what I'm learning, this is what we're leaning towards, and then had a process by which I I presented that and shared that with the task force for approval. And that's sort of how we moved forward. What we originally proposed is actually not the current, exactly the current program design, because there's real-world constraints and fundraising constraints on on any idea. But I do think it was great to sort of have that buy-in. And I think this was sort of a bit of organizing, like I'm both listening to people's ideas and attempting to sort of put them into something that is a cohesive plan right. that makes sense based on what the community has told us. And also that could realistically be implemented right. and sort of resonates with the moment. And so that was sort of some of the, the considerations I had when putting together this proposal and presenting it. Got it. 
And then the the task force like decides like, okay, let's move forward with this plan. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And it's important that in addition to the guaranteed income program, the task force made a couple other recommendations, mostly related to like state level legislation and around minimum wage and mm. affordable housing and wealth building mm-hmm. strategies, because we know no single program is going to fix everything. I think guaranteed right. income in particular is a very powerful solution because of the way it promotes agency choice really provides like a bedrock of economic security on which people can sort of build their future, but that this doesn't stand in isolation. So got it. And last question on this. So you like came up with those solutions. Is there kind of like, did you have uh, sort of like rounds of feedback with the community members? Like, okay, here are some of the solutions we're proposing. Like, did you run the solutions by them before making that final decision? We did not, mm. frankly. Okay. And I think in retrospect, I would. Okay. I think we there were community members who were on the task force and sort of organization, community-based organizations that sort of were holding the perspective of the folks, participants in their programs. But there was not a formal process by which we sort of, almost like that roundtable town hall where we presented this and really had an open session for feedback. I think this is on the note of like organizational capacity and making sure that once you sort of start a process, ensuring you have the resources and personnel to like, complete that process, especially when it is community facing. Mm. But like when you begin an endeavor, so many times people start something and they don't actually fulfill their promise. I was cognizant even during listening sessions. I really hope we can get something, no matter what the solution is, I really hope we can get a program funded or sort of get the policy changes that people are going to share with me. But I don't have a ton of authority personally (laughs) to do this at this time. And so I think making sure as we're talking to community members that you actually have sufficient infrastructure to follow through at each stage. I think in retrospect, that sort of taking sort of a final or near final version of that recommendation to community for really an open feedback would have been a great step. Some of that was happening in like smaller circles Mm -hmm. and sort of more organically with the members on the task force and then a little bit sort of other folks in in the neighborhood. But I think that would have been a a great process to include. Mm. Yeah. Always going to be room for improvement. If you did yeah. it perfectly, that would be a shock. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think it's ever happened before. Good question. <laughs> awesome. And so last question for you before we go into our rapid fire question round. What's next for you? What are you going to be focused on now that this program is up and running and kicking off? Yeah, I'm so excited that we've been able to fundraise for this program. We're near the finish line for fundraising. So if folks are interested in supporting, they can visit us at inherhands.us to support our work. And then I think from here, I'm really excited to develop out sort of what are the learnings from this process, not just the outcome, but the process itself. And how can we ensure that community voices are experts? within this process, not just inputs, but are the experts driving, I think, a lot of the learnings from this program and from the process itself. So that's something that our organization will be working on directly with our community advisory collective, who's helping to drive a lot of this work and will be helping to write up and and disseminate some of the findings from the program. And then for me, I think I'd like to see how we can translate the learnings of this program development into like policy development. It would be so incredible if whether it's education, economic policy, housing policy, if we were able to take all the learnings from communities across the country, and if those funneled up into like what a policy looks like that is equitable, that is just, that is makes sense for those experiencing the, the brunt impact of an issue, I would love to see sort of how that can happen. Guaranteed income is one space in which we're seeing a lot of that work happening with pilots across the country, mm-hmm. but it could be in any sector. And so I'd love to see sort of more of those frameworks happening and love to be engaged in spaces where that work is happening. I have no doubt you will be. That sounds incredible. All right. Awesome. Well, we are ready for our rapid fire question round. I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to answer them as rapidly as you're able to. Sometimes people don't listen to my rules and they take their time, but I'll do my best. As rapidly as you can. (laughs) Are you ready? I'll try to do my best. Yep. Ready. All right. Let's do this. What's your favorite book? To give as a gift to others. All About Love by Bell Hooks. Mm. Why is that your recommendation? I think it's a reminder for a lot of people involved in like deep community work, deep community organizing and advocacy, which can also be exhausting, that our work is ultimately about love for humanity, which is also rooted in love for ourselves. So I think 
I live in a deep policy world where I talk about economics a lot. Yeah. And yet, like, I think what drives me most in this work is like my love for my community and my love for people around me. And so I think that book can help to root us back to some of the reasons why we do this work in the first place mm. and even sort of our personal journeys in this work. I think everybody who builds community professionally just like nodded their heads in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome recommendation. Next question. What did education teach you about building community? <laughs> well, there's nothing like trying being a first year teacher to a fifth and sixth grader <laughs> who are <laughs> maybe, I think it taught me that you have to, that the process is just as important as the outcome. And that it is ultimately, there is no problem for which we do not collectively have the answer to. And when we're focused on this sort of as a collective, and when we create like collective solutions, we think about this, not just as individuals, but sort of our fates are tied together in many ways, sort of this collective approach that there's nothing that we can't do and there's nothing that we can't solve. And I think when I was teaching lots of times, it would feel very, very individualistic. And I think when students would be most bought in, when it would make the most sense to students is when we were actually calling out, wait, some of these issues are actually systemic. I taught social studies, so that was sort of easy to pull out some of those themes and trends. And I think that sort of that work and in talking to about, I had 200 students, about 200 students, each with different backgrounds, each who are unique, but many of which were sort of grappling with some of the same issues at their age and because of their economic background, mm. that there was nothing we couldn't solve if, if we came together and that there was sort of a hope and an optimism there that is easy to get down about when you're by yourself, but is much easier to lean into that optimism when you're with a collective of people advocating for it together. Love it. Well said. All right. Next question. What's a community engagement tactic or conversation starter you like to use maybe when you're facilitating groups? I like to ask folks the meaning behind their name. And so they can pick any of their names. It can be a funny story. It can be a mm. serious story. It can be my sibling who was three years older than me got to name me, you know, <laughs> like any of those things. But I like to ask folks the meaning behind their names because it sort of leverages itself towards whatever level of depth people want to go into, they can go into. And usually it means a lot about what's brought them into the space in the first place. Hmm. I love that. Never heard that one before. <laughs> it's a good one. All right. I heard you're a big fan of The Office. What's your favorite episode of The Office and why? Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> There's a real curveball. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite is probably The Office where Dwight is getting everyone ready for... This is awful, honestly. <laughs> Dwight is getting everyone ready for like... It's like a fire drill. And Dwight basically like stages that there is a fire happening in the building and like people are freaking out. They're falling through this, the ceiling. I don't know why. It's just, I mean, I guess you, if, wouldn't you know Dwight as a character and I think <laughs> all the other characters and that they all act so in accordance with the character as they've been built up. It's an opening scene too. It comes on before even like the, like the opening credits. It's three minutes of just laughter. <laughs> 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 that is a good one. <laughs> I like uh, it was a little bit of a change of topic from uh, the rest of our conversation, but I like your answer very much. <laughs> <laughs> Who in the world of community would you most like to take out to lunch? I think Ai Po. I think her work with the National Domestic Workers Alliance is really incredible and done with such like care and thoughtfulness. I think both in terms of like runs really specific programs that results in like significant change, material change in people's like work circumstances, wages, all of that. And her her thoughts on like broadly what it means for change and sort of what our economy broadly and not just economy, but society broadly is really inspiring. So yeah, I'd say Ajin Po. Awesome. Good one. What habit has had the most positive impact on your life? <laughs> I would say for this one, adaptability. So like knowing when to lean into the unknown and being okay with the unknown and being okay with sort of adapting one day at a time, one meeting at a time. And so I think that adaptability, really specifically what came to mind is that I have intentionally never set for myself like a bedtime because I work really well late at night. Mm. And so this is the opposite. I know of what a lot of other people do, but I've always intentionally- Anti-habit. <laughs> yeah, I've always intentionally said to myself, 
you can stay up as late as you need to feel good about it when you go to sleep. And sometimes that's work related. Sometimes that's related to sort of a TV, an office binge. So of course, yeah. Once in a while, <laughs> yeah. you, just, you just gotta binge some office. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an anti habit. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I really like the idea of an anti habit. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna think about that more. I think I have quite a few of those. <laughs> What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> I think. I lived in New Orleans for five years and I was once part of a dance crew Oh, that would perform flash mob dances. And this is very timely since Mardi Gras is coming up that there would perform go. flash mob dances at parades and we would wear matching t-shirts and shorts and we would sort of perform these flash mob. No one's asked for this. No one's requested it, but we're just going to perform a flash mob coordinated <laughs> dance. And our key song, our key dance was to Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody. Of course. Of course. Yep. You were part of a flash mob crew. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's incredible. <laughs> yep. Did you like all hang out like outside the flash mob? I always wonder like what's going on outside the flash mob? Like were you all getting drinks before, after? Like there's got to be more than just the flash mob. Yes. You meet for breakfast. So th- this is several days because Mardi Gras is actually like a season. Sure. You know, yeah. it's set for several weeks. And so, yes, this is a commitment. This is Saturday morning, you need to be here for breakfast, then probably a, a couple mimosas, and then you need to be ready for your flash mob performances. So it was a multi-month commitment during Mardi Gras season. Got it. Wow. <laughs> not anymore, yep. though. You haven't done a flash mob in a while? No, not not recently. <laughs> well, maybe one day soon. Maybe a good community builder exercise. I will there you go. consider it for the future. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. A couple more. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? pizza good answer i'm from new york so that's the right answer yeah all other answers are not acceptable okay okay glad it's (laughs) new york new york style pizza too so well i assume so (laughs) (laughs) all right what's a community product you wish existed i wish there was like a tool that would enable people to talk about what's happening in their community and what they'd like to see in their community that was not very negatively focused or that, that did not reify and re-encode like racial and class tropes. I wish there was like a tool that brought people together to talk about sort of like what they collectively want to do versus like problems that exist, especially mm. in ways that sort of reify racism, classism. Mm. So I would love to see a tool like that exist. I think it would be yeah, we'd be interested in the challenges that would arise in creating such a tool. But I think people would be really interested in connecting with their neighbors and other people in their community. And people want these things. They just don't have great ways always of like talking to other people who want these things too. Mm. And sometimes those spaces too can feel really negative because the problems that we're facing are overwhelming. And so how do we add like some joy, some levity to it? How do we make it something that feels really accessible and doable when we're in it together? I like that. Yeah, there was a company I advised like many, many years ago called Neighborland that was trying to do something like that. I don't know if they're still around or not. I feel like the not reinforcing racial tropes and not focusing (laughs) on negative things is like a community management task. Yeah. That's hard, but I love that idea. That's a really good one. Yeah. All right. Last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one piece of advice for the rest of the world, what would that advice be? One way to think about it is like, what's like a value that just always comes to mind for you, like something that always guides you? Yeah, I already shared the thing about sort of like our, there's no problems for which we don't have solutions or collectively have solutions. I think that my... That could be it. (laughs) My piece of advice would be like, what we can do is boundless if we're committed to doing the work that it requires. So there's nothing that we can't accomplish if we're committed to doing it. And if we're committed to doing it in collaboration with one another, like we are limitless. And so we have proven time and time again, especially when I think about sort of the African-American community in the U.S., we are limitless in terms of what we can do. We are boundless in terms of what we can do. And so if we put our minds to it and our collective effort to it, there's really nothing that we as community, even beyond the Black community in the U.S. more broadly, There's nothing that we can't do and there's nothing that we can't accomplish because we have most certainly done it before. Well said. Awesome. Well, Hope, thank you so much for joining me, for sharing that whole experience and journey of creating (laughs) in our hands and how you built it with a community. Like I learned a ton that I'm going to bring back to my community. I know everyone listening 
Bill too, and thank you for the work that you're doing to try to reduce racial inequality and wealth inequality and trying to take more innovative approaches to solving those problems. Um, your work's having a ton of impact for a lot of people, and you're clearly putting in the work and doing it collaboratively with the community. So just so much respect for you and everything you're doing and grateful again for you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. So grateful to be here and to connect with this community. So appreciate it. And just real quick, where should people go if they want to continue to learn from you? You mentioned people can go and donate to Inner Hands. Uh, That funding is still open. Highly recommend everyone go do that. I'm going to go do that right after this interview. But where else, anywhere else that you want to send people to continue to be involved in the work you're doing? Yeah, if people want to learn more about our work and sort of follow the arc of this project, including some of our learnings as we have them, they can visit www.thegrowfund.org to learn more about our work. And that's G-R-O fund, right? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so thegrofund.org. Awesome. All right. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.